There are two scriptures that I want to read to us today, and we've been talking about grace and the grace of God that calls us to Him, enables us to respond to that very call, and His grace which um, reveals to us His requirements and expectations for us if we're going to be His children and His grace that also helps me fulfill His revealed requirements. So <clears throat> there's nothing that God doesn't um, precede us in in the whole business of grace, marvelous, marvelous doctrine of grace that God paves the way for us back to Him um, from our rebellion against Him and estrangement from Him. Now, <clears throat> we looked last week at justification by faith and what justification is, being put right in the sight of God. He looks at us, looks at us as if we had not sinned. He blots our record clear. And He puts within our hearts new life that wasn't there before. We're dead in trespasses and sins. But when those trespasses and sins are forgiven, he pardons us and he adopts us as his own. He infuses his spiritual life into our hearts. And we're made alive in him. And it's called being born again. We know that probably, that term the best. <clears throat> and so this first scripture that I want to read from Romans chapter 5 we'll discuss that work of God in our hearts, justification, putting us right in His sight, whereas before we aren't. But it adds another kind of grace beyond the grace of justification. There are two scriptures we want to read today, Romans 5 and then James 4. So Romans 5, first, <clears throat> verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, so that is already an accomplished fact. It's a work that is done, finished in my heart. I am now justified. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God refers to the end of hostilities. We are no longer enemies between me and God. I'm no longer in rebellion against Him. We have not met halfway. Um, we've come over to God's side. We've laid our arms down. We have run up the white flag. And we have sworn allegiance to the God whom we have rebelled against. And we're reconciled. That's another word that the New Testament uses frequently. We're reconciled to God. That which has caused estrangement is put away. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. I'll read several more verses, but verse 1 refers to a work called justification. We're put right with God, and that's only possible through Jesus. Then verse 2 tells us, there is also another grace. The word also introduces something else, something in addition, something beyond. Having been justified through Jesus, we also, through Jesus, have been inducted by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, this grace, this additional, this also grace, is what I want us to look at today. We'll look later a little bit at our other scripture. But continuing on here, verse 3, and not only this, not only do we have an also in addition grace, in addition to justification, we also exalt or exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because, how do we know that our hope of heaven and hope of God's faithfulness will for sure be delivered on? How do we know that the hope we have for good that God has promised will indeed happen? Because it's a down payment, in a sense, as earnest money. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, Paul is plainly referring to a grace different than, subsequent to, and beyond the grace of being converted, being saved. In other words, there is a grace for those who are saved beyond the initial grace of being saved. That grace is a further, deeper, and James will use the term greater grace. It is the grace of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It consists of a new power to live, to witness, to walk with God, that was conferred on the day of Pentecost to the apostles. And the terms that we find, especially here in verse 5 of chapter 5, are what, let me use this term, I'm not using denominationally, they're Pentecostal terms. They are terms associated with the day of Pentecost. And here we, we have poured out on the day of Pentecost it says the Holy Spirit 
was poured out upon them. And the Holy Spirit, according to the Old Testament prophet Joel that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost, I will pour out on all flesh my spirit and my handmaidens and my servants shall preach, prophesy, testify. I will pour out upon all flesh my spirit. That's a Pentecostal term. That's a term associated with Pentecost. And hang on, I'll explain why that is. <clears throat> it's been poured out within our, within our hearts, the love of God, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Given is in the original language another Pentecostal, Pentecost-related term. Now, why make such a big deal of Pentecostal terms or associating it with the day of Pentecost? Because the day of Pentecost was not for sinners. The day of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on those 120 gathered in the upper room were already believers. They were already believers. They didn't need to be converted. They didn't need the new birth. They already were born of God. When Jesus prayed in the garden for that day, which would be about 50 days later, the day of Pentecost, He prayed, pour out your spirit, sanctify, purify these you have given me. And then Jesus said, these you've given me that will be in that upper room 50 days from now and receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. So Jesus identified them as having the divine grace of God in their hearts redeeming them from sin and judgment and hell. So Pentecost was not for sinners. It was for believers. And what was accomplished there? There are two requirements in the Old Testament and in the New. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. Hands illustrates my outward life. The outward life of the practice of sinning is to dirty my hands. It's my outward life. God looks for clean hands. But deeper down and farther back than my hands, my visible behavior, is a heart all of us were born with with a taint to it, a bent to it, a bent to rebellion, a bent to self-autonomy, a bent to excessive love of me and my agenda and my opinions and my way. That we're born with. The bent, the bent to sinning in that sentence is two things the bent 
and the fruit of the bent, which is sinning. So we have two problems. The sinning, which brings guilt, condemnation, and ultimately, if I will not repent, it brings hell. That is dealt with when we repent and when we are justified. So I'm set right in God's sight and by His grace, indwelling my heart, I am able to stop the practicing of outward acts of rebellion against God. That's sin. All sin, the Bible says, is lawlessness. I stop breaking God's law. But the bent toward that urges me, pushes me towards rebellion remains in my heart. It is subdued because the Holy Spirit lives in my heart and enables me to resist successfully its impulses. I can resist it. I do not need to give in to the bent that remains in my heart and fall back into sin. There's no excuse if I do. However, I may be able to resist and can, by grace, its promptings, but I can do nothing about its presence. It's still there. It still pushes me in an opposite direction that Jesus is calling me. And so I end up with what the Bible terms, and we'll read it in a second, a double-minded condition, or literally the word is sold. S-O-U-L-E-D, double-souled. I have two natures within my heart, two impulses. One drawn to Christ. I want to follow Jesus. I love God. But something in terms of an undertow is still in my heart that draws me to pursue my own agenda. I usually don't discover that deep bent, that undertow, until God in His sovereign direction and His care of us in our lives confronts that. As long as the Lord answers every prayer the way I want Him to, because we know better. And as long as he grants whatever we want, that thing in there is never stirred up. We hardly know it's there. It's when in the course of walking as a Christian and in a difficult life that we all live in um, and prayers, deeply wished prayers, may not be answered the way we hope and ask God to answer them. That there is a clash of wills. God's will, it's just like Job in a magnificent statement. When all happened to Job, his children were struck dead, all of his money and flocks were gone. And his wife said, why don't you curse God and die? What good's it been to serve God all these years? And Job answered this way. He said, we have gladly, I'm paraphrasing a bit, we have gladly received good from God. 
Should we not receive evil too? Now that's a heart in which the bent is gone. God said that about Job. His heart's perfect toward me. It's united. But when it isn't, and God doesn't come through the way we think He should, and hope He would, then there's a clash of my will against God. His agenda it wasn't in parallel with my agenda, and I am upset about it. I don't like it. That prompts what you'll... I quote this hymn, but anyway, you'll live to hear it again. <clears throat> Bind my wandering heart like a fetter, a rope. Somehow, bind my wandering heart to thee. Okay? Then the next line. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's those two conscious impulses in our I love God. But I find that there is a tendency to wander away from Him when He doesn't dance to my tune. So what does it reveal? It reveals that there is an old core of self-centeredness and self-will and a love of self which is higher than my love of God when it comes right down to it. Because if God doesn't do what I wish, then we are, sometimes, we are inflamed with anger at God and we are grumbling against Him. We are, I'm not saying you can't say to God, Lord, why has this happened? But it better not have that bite to it, that bitter bite of irritation with God. God requires that His will be done and that there be in our hearts a Lord, Thy will be done. You know best. I don't. I will trust You. Now the devil can strongly tempt us there. To be tempted to become angry at God is not the same thing as being angry with God. I must yield to that temptation and basically agree with the whispering of the enemy who says, yeah, you served God and he did this to you. What in the world's wrong with asking that he spare your loved one? But they died. What in the world? Goods are done to serve God. Why in the world would you, what would it hurt? To, you know what I mean? Those temptations will come to us and they usually find a resting place. They usually find fertile soil in the heart that has not been cleansed of the inner bent to sinning. 
And so we find ourselves then getting off the, the road that we're supposed to be on and getting into trouble, transgressing. You know what transgress literally means? It means to go off the road, go down through the barrow ditch, and go through the fence. That's what it means. And we transgress. And then what do we do? Well, we're out in the middle of the pasture, and we realize, I shouldn't have done that. We repent. We get back. God wires the fence back. But if that tendency prone to wander remains, I'll just go through the fence again. Does that make any sense? What God wants to do is remove from my heart that inclination towards that direction in the first place. Doesn't mean that I can't ever get off the road. I still have a free will. But the inclination to go that way can be removed so that the spontaneous inclination of my heart is, Lord, that's okay. Thy will be done. I love you. I can't see. I don't know what's going on, but I will trust you. That's a pure heart. And he requires clean hands and a pure heart. And this grace here in Romans that is in addition to that grace that justifies us is a second work in my heart. Now let me just finish up on this and then we'll go to, um, quickly, we'll go to the other scripture. Why do I know this is talking about a deeper down and um, farther back work of God in our hearts in addition to and following being justified, being born of God? How do I know that? Well, if we read on just five or six more verses, we would come to verse 12. And in verse 12, <clears throat> Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I'll stop there. There's three times the word sin or sinned appears. The first two have what's called the article. In other words, the word the. Beginning with verse 12 of 5, going clear through eight, chapter 8, verse 10 in Romans. In those three chapters, I think, if I remember, 28 times the word sin appears, and it's not sin the verb, which is an act that I commit, through my will, but it is the sin, which means the principle of sin, the bent that my heart is infected with from birth. He's not talking here then about forgiveness of sins. He's not talking about engaging in the practice of sin. He's now focused on a different and deeper kind of sin. It is the root of sin I'm born with. And roots always produce shoots and shoots produce fruit. So if you're God, if you're God, are you content with continually, 
perpetually clipping shoots? Or would you rather finally go after the root? God's cure is radical. And the word radical, the basic word behind that is root. Radishes. It's a root. God's radical. He goes after the root. To get me into his kingdom, he's got to deal with the fruit. Sinning, which is produced by the root. But he's not done. He wants to dig deeper and excise, cut out, remove the root. Every one of us, nearly, probably, have some tree or something in your yard. We've got a tree that is always producing shoots. Well, I'm unable to get to the root. It goes everywhere. I don't know where in the world to find it. I'd spray it with the meanest stuff I'd have, but it'd kill the whole tree. And I don't want to kill the whole tree. God doesn't want. He doesn't want to extinguish me. But the root in my heart that always puts up new shoots, and I'm going around clicking them off, snipping them off. That's what the Christian life with a double-minded heart ends up constantly being. I am spiritually taking yard trimmers and clipping off shoots. So what do we end up with? We spend most of our time trying to maintain a level of spirituality instead of the root removed and a new tree in its place that is inclined to godliness, holiness, God's will, loving God, obeying Him. He gives, Peter said, on the day of Pentecost, he said, He gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. So this grace that we are looking at here is a greater grace, and I'm, I will keep faith with you and um, we, it's bad, it's too bad that I yacked so long before getting to James 4. James 4 describes very clearly double-mindedness, and he uses that term. And he says there is a friendship with the world that crops up and would call us away. And he calls, he calls that Adultery, spiritual adultery, to depart from the Lord. And then he says, God gives a greater grace. God can fix that wandering. God can remove that. And then he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-souled. This grace is sanctifying, purifying grace to get rid 
of the root and that bent so that we no longer have a spontaneous inclination to our will, but there is, that's replaced with a spontaneous inclination to obey God. I still retain a free will. I can renege on God's promise. I can do what I want. But it's, let me put it this way, it is not possible for, or it is not impossible for a purified heart to backslide. It is possible to fall away. But it is highly improbable that I will. It's highly probable that I'll fall away if I still have that bent in my heart. With that removed, it's far more probable that I won't, that I'll walk with God and continue with Him all my days. This is a further grace that God has for us. I must respond to it like I have so far, all the grace that He's given us. Question I want to ask you then, I want us to ask God, let me see my heart. God told the Israelites, they were saved out of Egypt, out of bondage, slavery, which is the slavery of sin. God brought them out. And then what did he do? Brought them into the wilderness. And then being just an ogre, mean, <clears throat> he let them get thirsty. He let other nations start attacking them, bugging them. They ran out of food, but then he supplied it. But he let them experience difficulties. And then finally, he said, I let you. I did it on purpose. He said, I let you get hungry. I let you get thirsty. I let you, he said, and he, he called it, I led you through that great howling wilderness. Why? Because I'm mean and I'm sadistic? No. He said, so you might know your heart. So faced with difficulties, reverses, seemingly unanswered prayer, you'd find out whether or not you have in your heart a prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He said, that's why I did it. So you would know what was in your heart so that I could cure it for you and you would love the Lord your God with all your heart. So, if you've never discovered something down beneath after becoming a Christian, if you've never sensed any drawing, I'd be stunned, any drawing away. But if you haven't, ask God, Lord, sh show me. Show me that, and also show me the danger, the peril of it. I don't want to wander from God, but there's something in my heart that will. Show that to me. And bring me to the place where I can trust you to remove it from my heart. Just like I trusted you to forgive my sins. And I trust you, you'll do it. Let's bow our heads. And we'll conclude this morning with, without music. But I do want you to just let the Lord...